Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Zion, and I always love to be with the body on Sundays, celebrate, worship together. We're going to jump into the scriptures today. We're reading in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And we have been in a series in the book of Luke, if you're new here, and we are looking at right now in this portion of the scriptures of Luke at the ministry of Jesus, all the different things that he did before the um, Palm Sunday, before he announces himself as king, and then the passion of Christ begins. Now, has anybody, I don't know if you're, you're as bad as me, but has anybody ever seen somebody worshiping God on a Sunday, acting a little, little crazy and just judge them. Like, who is this? What are they doing? Now, if you never did, maybe you didn't grow up in the tradition of church that I grew up in, where if you weren't acting a little crazy, then you were judged. <laughs> and, you know, growing up in, in that tradition of church, there are a lot of people that did a lot of things for show, and quite frankly, deserve to be judged. But we won't get into that. You see a little bit of my sinfulness coming out. Um, you know, they, it, was, it was a show putting on, not for God, not for his glory, not because he, was, he is so magnificent, but because we wanted other people to see how Christian we were and how, and how good we were and get pats on the backs and, and such. But there was, this, there was this one guy in the church, I'll never forget him, he would, he was over the top, what he would do. But it was, it was different with him because I remember the first day that he came to church. It was actually a, a Tuesday night prayer. Y'all remember those? We had a Tuesday night prayer. There weren't a lot of people there. Unfortunately, that's how prayer goes a lot of times. That's another sermon for another day. Uh, but he walked in, and he was in, a, I guess the best way to say it was like a Dracula suit. He had the, the getup, you know, with the thing and the red, uh, completely bald everywhere, no eyebrows, no facial hair, no hair on his head, completely shaven. And he was sitting in the back, uh, and he was just crying. I had never met this man before. I didn't know who he was. And so after the prayer service, I just, you know, I went up to him, tattoos everywhere, pentagram, naked woman, I mean, all this stuff. And so I just asked him what his name was, who he was. He told me who was, what his name was. And we started talking, and he said that he was walking by the church, and God told him to come up. And, you know, he's not a believer. He sat down in the back of the sanctuary and just wept because he experienced the love of God for the first time in his life that night. Now, that guy has one of the most amazing testimonies I've ever heard before. He did things that many of us probably couldn't fathom doing, like drinking other people's bloods and, and vampire rituals and uh, satanic seances with friends and part of raves and clubs, you know, the things that you see in the movies in the city, the underground world. And the things that he could tell you would probably make your skin crawl. 
But that night, the love of God captured him. And what he experienced in that moment, nobody could take it away. Nobody could tell him, hey, you're acting too much. You're acting a fool. On Sundays, what he knew was he knew how he knew how to dance was he knew how to break dance. He knew how to rave. And so on Sundays, when he would dance before the Lord, he would go up to the front and he would start doing the sixth step in the front. He would start raving. He would start break dancing in the front. And you know, people that were new or people that didn't know his story would say like, what is this guy doing acting crazy? He's gonna make us all look bad. But man, I would get on their case and I would say, you know what, you don't know his story. You don't know what God did for him, what God has done in him. If you knew, you would say, go ahead, brother. Keep on praising, keep on dancing, keep on weeping, keep on shouting. Because what God did for him, he had to worship him, he had to praise him. He had to bow down before him, and he did it in the only ways that he knew how, which was a Saturday night rave on a Sunday morning in service. <laughs> Eventually, his hair grew back. He started replacing his tattoos, but what he never lost was what happened that first night. There were many services in worship or during preaching. I would hear him crying, and I would think, God, Thank you for him. Thank you for what you did in his life. Thank you. Because every week, every day, I knew this man. He remembered what God saved him from. He remembered who he was before the love of God drew him and captured him and saved him. And I would pray often, God, I pray I never lose the wonder of your forgiveness like my brother here has never lost the wonder of yours towards him. So I want to read this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 7. You can read along with me in the sheet. It says, And one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins 
which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. In chapter 7 of Luke, what we see unfolding in this portion of Scripture is the people are very interested in who Jesus is. Who is this guy? We've see, we saw last week that John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask that very question blatantly. Are you the Messiah? Who are you? We saw the People declared Jesus as a great prophet as he raised the dead before that. The centurion we saw in the story said that this is a man of authority. So there's lots of titles and lots of thoughts going around about Jesus. But all that tension comes to a head in this passage. Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? The Pharisee calls to question that title. In verse 39, when the woman comes before Jesus and begins to weep and wash and anoint his feet, he says that Jesus should have known who this was because if he did, he would have dis discarded her, said, don't touch me, you're unclean. So Jesus responds to that accusation and says, not only do I know her sins, but I know yours too. Jesus shows that he is doubly more than what this Pharisee has questioned. But then Jesus takes it a step further and he makes a declaration about himself that is hard for them and for us to wrap our head around. And I still think it is hard for us to wrap our head around. And that is this. He claims that he is God. He claims that he can forgive sins. See, why is this a declaration of his Godhead? It is because only the ultimate judge can wipe a debt clean of sinfulness. Only the one who is going to stand in judgment before you on the final day is going to be the one that can claim he is Lord over you. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's making a declaration about himself, about who he is, about his authority, his power. Not only is he a prophet, but he takes it a step beyond that. He knows more than the prophets know. He can do more than the prophets can do. He is God. Luke leaves no room for ambiguity on purpose here. He is slowly making his case of who Jesus is. And he is bringing it to fruition now. You either believe Jesus is God or you think he is a lying heretic. We cannot take a neutral position on Jesus. Luke is making that abundantly clear here in this passage. That when Jesus does this and says this, 
We cannot say that Jesus was a good person or just a prophet or a spiritual guru. That is taking a neutral position on Jesus. He is either God or he deserved the cross as punishment, just punishment for the claims that he made. He is either Lord of heaven and earth or we should not mourn and remember his death on the cross because what he said was blasphemy and he deserved what he got. See, Luke's stance is Jesus is God, the final judge, who forgives sins. But when we look at this story, we see these two characters, the Pharisee Simon and the woman were never given her name. The sinful woman were never given her sin. Lots of speculation has been made, but Luke leaves it out, and so therefore we will not talk about it. We just know that she is sinful. But how he portrays these two people how he juxtaposes them is incredible. He shows how one person reacts to Jesus who has this neutral stance on him and how this other person reacts to Jesus who knows who he is, Lord and Savior. See, the Pharisee is a follower of the law, well-educated, part of the religious elite who culture looked at as they know the word, they know the Bible, they know what God wants. Think of spiritual people. If you've ever been classified at work or through your friends because they know that you're a Christian of like, oh, that's, that's the Christian, that's the holy one, that's the, you know, that's the one who knows the Bible, or ask that person, then you can fit in this category. But the woman is seen as a sinner. That is her title. See, the Pharisee, when he speaks with Jesus, he speaks with Jesus almost as an equal. Right? He, he uses some deference. You're a teacher. says questions his, whether he's a prophet or not, so he doesn't call him a prophet. But we see how he treats him as an equal by how he treats Jesus as a guest, that he doesn't have to go above and beyond for him. He just treats him as he would treat any other of his peers that are coming over his house. And so he talks with Jesus. He converses with Jesus because that's what he does on this peer level. But the woman never says anything. She stays silent before him in reverence, knowing her station and his. See, the Pharisee invited Jesus over as a guest, most likely he was the guest of honor. See, what they would do back then is they would have meals almost every night with people in the neighborhood, and in the Roman Empire, it was part of a thing that you did. You, you went to this person's house for dinner, and then you invited them over your house the next day for dinner, and you know, throughout the week, you just switched dinner parties every day. But the woman... She went to where Jesus was. It says that she heard where he was and went. The Pharisee, he gave him just enough hospitality, but did not overdo it. Right? Probably to honor, to, to even the odds around honor a little bit. Like, we're going to honor you, having you, we're curious about you, but we're not saying anything special about you. 
the woman shows an overwhelming amount of hospitality, more than what would have been seen as someone who is the most hospitable. She uses her own tears to wipe his feet, to wash his feet. Now, if you don't know back then, it's not like they had stone paved roads or as we have concrete and they didn't have shoes that, and socks that kept their feet nice and clean. No, they were in the desert. It was mucky. It was disgusting. The, the, the horses and the camels and all of the livestock walked on the same streets you did and they don't use the toilet like humans do. And so their toilet was the road. So feet were disgusting. And so this woman, when she begins to wash his feet with her tears, her face before his feet, and how they used to eat, they didn't sit at a table like we would sit at a table. They would recline at the table. This is a, a Roman way of living. So, you know, when you think of like the Roman emperor in those movies where they're lying on the couch eating grapes, think about all the people surrounding kind of reclining, lying down, talking. So Jesus' feet are up and there she is washing his feet, probably smelling all the disgusting things that come with it. If you ever want to an exercise in something gross, look up what you know, the, the Middle Eastern feet were like back in Jesus' day and when they would wash them before dinner. All the things that they would find on it. But not only did she wash it with her tears, but then with her hair, which was considered the most beautiful part of a woman, she took it her hair and began to dry his feet, clean his feet with her tears in her hair. And then after that, what they would usually do is they would give some olive oil to anoint your head. You know, it's kind of like, almost like wearing makeup, like make yourself look good. That's why when they say that, when, when Jesus said, when you fast, don't anoint yourself with oil, because that was how you kind of got the bags out from under your eyes. You look good when, when you were with your friends, and so you go into the dinner party, you had some olive oil, put it on your face, get that nice shine. But she took an ointment that was vastly more expensive, and she dumped it on his feet because they were so precious to her. See, the Pharisee, he jumped at the first chance to question who Jesus was. Are you really a prophet? Are you really God? Are you who you say you are? But she jumped at the chance to honor Jesus. When she found out where he was, she ran, she went. She just walked into the stranger's house. Now, that wasn't as weird as it sounds to us nowadays because how they would do it is almost like a public invite. Everybody was allowed to come, open invite in the neighborhood. Everybody's reclining. They're talking to Jesus. They know where Jesus is that night. And so she walks into this semi-public gathering and she finds Jesus. She heard where he was and she went to honor him. And the Pharisee, he felt he was better than someone else and more worthy of Jesus's attention. But the woman, she didn't care about other people in the room. She only cared about Jesus. That was her one focus, the one thing on her mind. The Pharisee and the woman have 
a different view of Jesus. In the church, we call this Christology, their understanding of Jesus. One had a very high Christology, reverent, fervent, passionate about Jesus, what he's done and who he is. And one had a very low Christology. I was talking with my dad a couple of weeks ago, and he was, you know, for those of you that don't know, my dad's a pastor. He's been pastoring for almost 40 years now. And he was lamenting the state of the church, and he said, Justin, when you read the church fathers, they love Jesus so much. They, they took so much care and weight around his person and who he was, and today we just, we don't see that in the church anymore. We don't worship Jesus and talk about Jesus and think about Jesus like they used to anymore. There's this, that tension of this high and this low Christology. Do we make much of Jesus in our life? Or another way of asking this question is where do we place our love and affection? Where do we place our worship? See, the Pharisee, he put his love and affection in the law and in his personal strength, trying to sin as little as possible within his own ability and self-motivation. In that world, he needed Jesus very little. He didn't need to make much of Jesus. He didn't have a lot he needed Jesus for. He was self-capable, independent. He was more concerned about how others saw him and how he looked around, about his outward appearance, what he portrayed. And let me tell you, growing up a pastor's kid, I understand that very well. There is a certain sense of perfection that you need to carry with you. You don't want to make your dad look bad or your mom look bad. Listen, I wasn't good at that. I made him look bad all the time. <laughs> uh, quite a few Sunday school teachers quit because of me. But the pressure, the shame... I can do this. I can look good around other people. I remember when my, my view of hypocrisy in the church was shattered. I grew up thinking everybody in church was a saint. And then I became a youth pastor and I started counseling all the kids of the people I grew up with. And story after story of what was your home life look like? Now, a lot of you know me and you know how much I care about home life. This is some insight into that. Because I realized so much of church was a show. It was an exercise in theater. For us, you know, we take out the flags, we clap the tambourine, we would pray out loud, real loud, pray in tongues. But we didn't need Jesus much. We could do all that on our own. We could perform real well in front of other people. 
We were like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, clean, nice looking on the outside, dead and putrid on the inside. The Pharisee worshiped his own ability, his own ability to rely on the law and self-will and motivation and his own strength to follow the law. Now, as we realize, as Jesus points out over and over, they get the law completely wrong. So this was all an exercise in self-deception anyway. But the sinful woman put her love and affection or her worship in Jesus. She knew her status as a sinner was irreversible anywhere else. In that world, she needed Jesus very much. Can you imagine? She walked into this place. Now, her sin must have been common knowledge. For everybody would have known if if the Pharisee looked at him and said, well, he should know. I mean, this guy says he's a prophet. He doesn't even know what all of us know about this woman. In this world, she was irredeemable. She could never catch up to where her sins, the burden and the weight that her sins had placed on her. She never had any hope of redemption. She realized she had gone too far, that in the eyes of other men, in the eyes of the people around her, there was no hope for salvation. But yet she heard of Jesus. It was this man raising people from the dead, healing people from afar, proclaiming to be the one who would bring good news for the captive, for the poor, to set free those who were oppressed, to bring healing to the blind, and he's doing it. And we see that Jesus, when he looks at this woman, he says her faith has made her well. She put her trust in Jesus. And the result of that, her actions spoke loud as God's forgiveness transformed her. Her high view of Jesus was seen in how deeply she humbled herself before him, washing his feet with the tears and the expensive oil. See, the Pharisee viewed it as below his station, below him to offer honor beyond the dignity of his station, the dignity of his title. See, the problem is some of us have been trying to keep our dignity when we go before God. But when we realize who Jesus is, that we realize what he has done for us. There is only one posture that we can have before the king. There is only one posture in worship that our life begins to conform to. There is only one posture that we will have when we worship him, and that is reckless abandon like this sinful woman. Take my dignity, Lord. If it means I will worship you to what your honor should have, Take my most expensive materials, Lord. If what it means is that I can worship you with what you are worth, take what other people think about me and say about me. Lord, take it all. 
because you are worthy of it all. You're worthy more than what if I can even give if I gave you everything. You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David went and he recovered the Ark of the Covenant and he brought the presence of God back into the city of Jerusalem. And what did he do at that moment? He did something that was undignified, that was below his station, that other people may have looked at weird. He took the robe of the priest and he began to dance with all his strength, it said, because something happened. In that moment, the presence of God had been returned back to the city once it was lost and they didn't have it and the Philistines had it and then this other city in Israel had it, but he brought it home successfully. And when the presence of God came down, out went kingly dignity, out went what other people would think about him. What did he do? He danced with every ounce of strength that he had in his body. During worship, I tell you, church, some of you are trying to keep it together. During prayer time, some of us don't go up because we're scared of what the other person will think. Oh, I got to walk around the whole room. How many people am I going to have to look at or will see me before I make it to that leader to pray? When we worship God, we're scared to raise our hands or to clap and to sing hallelujah because it's below my status, my, my dignity as a human being. Some of us need to dance like David danced. You remember that song? Some of us need to open our mouth and hallelujah again. Some of us need to remember what it's like to worship the king, to put, make much of Christ in our life. Like this woman, when she went before Jesus, there was no shred of dignity left for her in that moment. But what mattered more was the worship that she gave to the Messiah, the one who canceled her debt was worth every ounce of praise that she had. The best material ointment that she could conjure the only posture that was worthy of his station and hers was kneeling before his dirt-stained, smelly feet and to give her pride with her hair. Say, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. She didn't need to say a word then because her actions said everything that needed to be said she didn't need to scream and to shout in that moment. She didn't need to defend Jesus to the other Pharisees that questioned him. She didn't need to do that because what she did was she offered all. Church, I don't espouse that we start hanging from the chandeliers during service. But I do espouse that we stop trying to do worship dignified. Yeah. 
that we stop caring about what other people will think or say, or if maybe I'm too loud, will other people look at me? If maybe I go to that prayer line for the fifth week in a row, maybe somebody will think less of me. If maybe I ask for prayer once again in the group chat, I go to Jesus, church. It's because all hope is lost everywhere else. I know who I am. I know what he saved me from. I know what I was like and my mind still is like today that without Jesus, I have no hope of redemption. I have no hope of righteousness. I have no hope. Without Jesus, I am just a lost sinner that everybody else can point to and say, look at him. I would only be able to hide it for yet so long as I already know I was only able to hide it for so long in my life. There will be a time where I will crack and everybody will see the true tomb that I am. But if it isn't for Jesus... He's worth every ounce of worship. He's worth every moment. He's worth every day. He's more worthy than my job. He's more worthy than my family. He's more worthy than my shows. He's more worthy than my books. He's more worthy than my time. He's more worthy than what other people will think. He is more worthy than other people's stares. He is worthy, church. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. And sometimes we just have to remember that I've been walking around like a Pharisee too long, questioning Jesus, who are you like Job and the answer that God gives back? Were you there when the foundations of the world were underpinned? Were you there when the sun rose for the first time? Were you there in the first full moon? Were you there in the storms that created the world? Were you there? I wasn't Jesus, I'm sorry. I remember who you are and I come before you. Naked, I went into this world to dust. I will exit it, God. You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And what did this woman need? She needed one thing. She needed faith in Jesus that everything else in this world had left her. Everything else had walked away. There was nothing left for her. Everybody had looked down on her. There was nothing in this world that she could give to trust her future righteousness to, to trust her future salvation to. Messiah had come into the town. Messiah was before her. Messiah was in the next house reclining at the table. And when Messiah is in the room, I only have one position. And that is one of humility, one of me being on my knees. I will give you my tears. I will give you all that I have, my honor, my dignity, my pride. You could have it all, Jesus, because you gave me everything. Some of us have to remember how to shout because God's done something that just, man, it is better than that football game. God's done something. Remember how to praise because he's done something. Remember how to worship because he's done something. There was this thing that I do that somebody asked me about the other day 
which is when I'm reading a scripture or a commentary or a sermon outline, a lot of times after I have to stop and pray and just worship God. Because when I remember what Jesus has done, when we remember, when we are reminded in worship who he is, when we are reminded in the sermon who he is, when we are reminded when we pray, when we read the scriptures during the week, when we are reminded of who Jesus is, don't let it be below you to stop and worship wherever you are. Stand with me. Church, has Jesus done much? Worship him much. Has Jesus done much? Worship him much. We're lucky right now. We got the band. We got the singers. We got the room. But let me tell you, as Jonathan just said, we have Jesus. That woman didn't need a band and an eight-piece quartet to get on her knees and worship him. She just needed one person in the room, and she worshiped him. Father, help us right now to worship you. That we would think much of you. That our Christology would be high. And that our faith, our trust, would find one object of affection. Would find one thing to fully believe in, and that is you. Help us to have the power of this woman, reckless abandoned before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, as we worship, our prayer team will be on the side. I challenge us don't make it just a great worship experience right now. Let it be a change in our lifestyle to make much of Christ every day that we live. Let's worship him. now.